Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 14, Kathleen Brady. Kathleen Brady is my yoga teacher, and she is also the host of, or one of the hosts of Secretly Y'all, a monthly uh, story-swapping event for charity uh, that happens at Balasso, back room at Balasso. Um, She didn't like it when I called it Story Karaoke. But uh, people do, different people, every month get to get up and tell stories based on a theme. So I think my description is reasonable. Depends on, I guess, your association with karaoke. I happen to like it. But uh, uh, this is a, um, a um, an interesting conversation. Uh, there are, um, I think there are moments of it when um, the fact that I really don't know Kathleen that well... Uh, is apparent <laughs> also that and this is one of the things that I really um, I am enjoying finding out although it's uncomfortable sometimes that you know I've got ideas about things or things that I think and that I tell myself and then when I say them out loud I'm I, the person I'm saying them to doesn't agree and I don't even agree um, and if I were really being a perfectionist and uh kind of going against my beliefs and values with this project I would edit those things out but I think the important things about conversations is what the people in the conversations learn and sometimes it's not that they learn something new it's that they learn something old isn't true and um, and the people having the conversation can learn that and the people listening to it can learn that so um Again, like if I was a professional and if I wanted this to be journalism and if I wanted it to be perfect, I would maybe cut out some of those stretches um, that happen in different conversations. But I'm saying, like Pee Wee Herman, I meant to do that. Uh, Because not every conversation flows perfectly and not everything, do people agree on everything? And sometimes, uh, (laughs) in fact, in, in in an upcoming episode you'll get to hear me argue with somebody that i've known a long time and uh sometimes not knowing the person i'm talking to is a good thing and i and it's a really like just fun exciting flow and sometimes it's awkward and sometimes talking to somebody i know really well is a good flow and it's fun and sometimes it's awkward and sometimes it's even confrontational and contentious but i think that is what interests me again about doing this whole undertaking is I want to celebrate independent spirited people that I know of many ages Kathleen and Herschel are probably the first ones that are you know out of my exact kind of generation but they're not going to be the last um, I and I'm, I'm really interested in iconoclast and I want to talk to them and I think you know you're gonna in a lot of the interviews I have coming up we get to opining about things that are going on in the city of Richmond and we may not know what we're talking about we may be talking out of our ass but we're talking about it and i think it's important again that even when people don't know what they're talking about they can risk being wrong it can risk having an opinion that um, isn't popular Um, i'm interested in that i'm willing to take the fall on that i'm willing to ante up and show you minds if you show me yours um okay you know it's what's the worst that could happen that you know when when people find out what people really think as long as it isn't predict presented in a 
abusive or a shitty way, it's always a good thing. It's revelatory, re- reveals things, and we don't we like things to be revealed. Why have things be hidden? Um, more we know, the better. So um, that is either a really uh, good uh, artist statement about my plans for these interviews or an awesome rationalization for not editing them and not doing research and not preparing you decide um but even i think listening to me be clumsy and wrong and whatever is entertaining even if it's not good journalism or good hosting um it's been a lovely week uh for me since last we spoke i spent the weekend uh, in the uh, first i went to orange Virginia to meet with Abby Harper and we really had a great chat in her apartment downtown Um, and I really enjoyed just going to a little rural town like that when I was younger going to a place like that I would just be like why would anyone live here and now I look at little towns like that I'm like how can I figure out how to live here it's beautiful up there and Virginia is ridiculously beautiful we have some incredible countryside just not even that far outside of town and i really appreciate it it's just lovely i took the scenic route up there um, 522 from 64 just winding all around through the countryside beautiful then i went down and visited jayon and he has escaped being interviewed again Um, i ended up just following him around as he showed me the various uh, venues where he is developing bands and i got to check out his own space just the main street annex and i didn't re- know this till i went up there that my old friend jayon has actually <clears throat> got his own space that he is on the verge of uh, actually leasing but right now is just exclusively booking and handling whatever events go on in there and it's really i'm i was really impressed and we're going to talk about this when i actually get him on the interview but you know jayon went up there for one job and that job didn't work out and then he found a place where things were needed and there were you know there was a role to play and he created a business and a use and a need and a, and a service for that area um that i think is pretty unique i've never really i've been around kind of the music business and around people promoting shows and i've i, don't, I think he really has sort of come up with a great model all his own that really takes a lot of the guesswork i guess out of like you know bands expectations and club owners expectations and so often they both have assumptions that the other should understand what their um what their role is to the other and they don't understand and and people get in over their heads and they get into situations of having to guarantee money and all of this kind of stuff and nobody uh, has communicated beforehand so everybody's on the same page um they thought they did but they didn't and i've seen that a million times i mean i used to manage a club in new york and people would have like you know 300 people 200 people come see them but you know they were in a room that really needed like you know a 500 to a thousand to for them to turn a profit so they had only covered costs and they came up to the office thinking they were going to get some money and their contract had said they don't get money until they after they paid for all the stuff that they had to pay for and they would always be pissed so i see you know jayon is doing a really good job of communicating I mean, it's like understanding the psychology of both the club owners and the bands. And he's playing a role to communicate for them and filling up nights of entertainment for them. And, you know, it's a great business. And I'm, I, I guess I'm supporting business. I'm going to be doing some work for him. I'm really, uh, but I'm really proud of him for going about uh, 
business and creating something for himself this way. And I think I'd like to use it as a model for, for myself and encourage others to do so because I feel that we so often are looking for somebody who's already got something going on that we can hitch our wagon to. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's other wagons. You can make your own wagon. This is America. It is still possible to bootstrap. You just don't get to bootstrap yourself right up to CEO. You know, you got to start somewhere. And, you know, you have to, sometimes you have to start over, you know, even older. So that's your inspirational chat for the day. Um, you're welcome. I know. Now you're ready to get out there and take on the world, aren't you? So um, I also, uh, well, that's never mind. Let's get into the effing interview because it's already at eight minutes. And uh, this is Kathleen Brady, one of my favorite people that I've met new and new in Richmond. And uh, if you have a chance to take a yoga class from her, highly recommend you do it. But also do come check out uh, Secretly All at Balasso. Um, it's next Monday, the 12th, I believe. And uh, it's going to be Dave Brocky, Odorous Orungus from Guar, telling stories about his travels over Russia, and this is all for charity. Uh, it's a good cause that you can feel good about supporting. Um, so let's get to Kathleen. Hello, Kathleen. Hey, Curtis. How are you? Warm. How are you? I'm warm, too, but it's not as warm as it has been. It's pretty comfy, actually, for hot Richmond. So you've had a busy day today? Just teaching some classes, the usual. Yeah? What classes did you teach today? On Mondays, I teach a 2 o'clock donation-based class that you were in today. I was in that. Um, it was a Hatha yoga class. And Very nice. At 4 o'clock, I go over to the Fox School, and I teach some of the teachers there some Hatha. Oh, really? Is it the Fox School teachers? Some of the teachers and the principal and... Um, some other people we've pulled in. Really? And then at 6 o'clock, I go over and teach a class called Deep Release at Yoga Source. So I just got home from that. What is the Deep Release that that is uh, referring to? I've seen that in your Facebook it's, updates. Well, you thought class today was pretty reasonably slow. Mm -hmm. It's even slower. Oh, yeah? And it's mostly done on the floor. Like, we don't mm -hmm. do a lot of standing poses um, and poses are usually held like minimum two to five minutes. So like tonight we were doing a bunch of hip openers. So we're like in lunges for like three or four minutes at a time, pigeon pose, all sorts of stuff like that. We use a lot of props. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a restorative element to the practice as well. So you're a, you're a yoga teacher and a dance. You, do you teach dance or are you da more of a performer? I dance. Yeah. I don't teach. Just dance. <laughs> Did you go to school for dancing? No, I went to school to be a normal person. I was grew up a dancer, and I broke my feet when I was 17. You grew up what? My feet. Now, you said... <laughs> <laughs> Both of them. I got stress fractures in my metatarsals. From what? What caused that? Uh, from too much dancing, I guess. Bad nutrition, probably. So you grew up a dancer, and you hurt your feet, and that diverted your path, and you went to school to be a normal person. Where did you grow up? Arlington. Would you, was that straight Arlington until you came to Richmond? Straight Arlington until I went to school in Charlottesville. I went ah. to UVA. Oh, you did. And what was your uh, 
What was your life like in Arlington? Uh, my life specifically, yeah. my whole life. Or well, standard. You know, what was the upbringing like? You know, like uh, typical middle class Northern Virginia Nova kind of thing. Uh, I never knew that Northern Virginia was called Nova until I left Northern Virginia. We, Nova was the community college to us. Right. Um, well, growing up there, Arlington looked a lot different. So my childhood, I spent a lot of time riding bikes. There was some ponds we'd go fishing in. We'd build forts. There was awesome bike trails up there, so we'd do that. Or go up to 7-Eleven and buy a bunch of candy, you know, that sort of good stuff. Walk to the library. Take the subways places. I was riding the subway at like... The DC Metro, is that what we're talking about? Yes, the DC Metro Transit (laughs) System. Um, So that's a little bit different than how Arlington looks now, I guess. Um, my neighborhood is totally different. The house I grew up in is still there, but all the houses around it were pretty much knocked down and these huge houses have been put in. And, uh, I was just talking recently about, I don't know if you spent any time in Arlington. I was, yeah, I was through there in the nineties. I had friends, a whole group of friends that were from there that came here to go to VCU and uh-huh. I would occasionally go visit them. And I remember that there were some nice like Victorian kind of North side looking neighborhoods mm-hmm. with a uh, big old like Cape Cod type houses and wraparound porches then there's just a lot of strip malls strip or, malls. or st- shopping centers i should say just like where were you in arlington i don't remember i just remember that there, <laughs> that it didn't it had this weird feeling to me like there were these funny little islands of cool old houses and then there was just a lot of stuff that wasn't that aesthetically pleasing like um hunks of that but you know i guess it depends where you are in the city i, I mean mm-hmm. i at this point wouldn't even there's places that I wouldn't even recognize now that have been mm-hmm. redone, you know. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I did. I rode bikes a lot and so did you like did you f- about did you like uh, growing up in Arlington and uh, did you go to like D.C. much when you were coming up as a cause you went to I guess I assume you went to college when you were 18. So did, in your teens, what was uh, what was the pull? Did you uh, did you feel the need to go into the we the, well, cross I was the bridge is joking with a friend the other day because it's funny because everybody knows where Arlington is as far as the Nova situation goes. That's right it's across that what the Key Bridge or uh-huh. yeah from Georgetown. Um, uh huh. Yeah. But I never went like other than going to D.C. We never went anywhere else. Like everybody was like, oh yeah, I used to come into Arlington all the time from Fairfax or wherever, and we were either in Arlington or we were in D.C. And so we explored D.C., but I mean, I was pretty young. I left when I was 17, so it's like, never really went and got into too, too much trouble. Right. Did you feel any kind of a pull towards uh, urban stuff? I guess not if you went to UVA. That was even more... Well, I didn't, I never saw UVA before I went. My, I didn't know anything about colleges, really. I applied pretty last minute, and um, actually, so I was talking about this recently. My, it was the one time my dad really, like, totally dad me he's like usually pretty much lets us do what we want to do but um but uh I got my acceptance letter to JMU and UVA on the same day and I was really psyched to go to JMU my brother went there I knew Mm -hmm. Harrison Berg like dad I got into JMU I'm going to JMU and he's like looking at me he's like what's that I'm like that's my acceptance letter to UVA and he just looked at me he's like you're going to UVA (laughs) and I was like uh, and I didn't know, I mean, I didn't really know. I was like, shrug, okay, whatever. So I went to UVA pretty much sight unseen and was 
pretty surprised when I got there. <laughs> yeah, how so? Um, I guess the way I would have described it at the time was I didn't get the memo on like the uniform you were supposed to wear. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't that interested in being in a sorority or knowing about the frats. So it took a little while to find my own type of people. Yeah, so what was your, uh, what was your own type of people with that, those formative years where we just start establishing our like, uh, pop culture identity, you know, around 16, 17? Were you artsy, the artsy type, the creative type? Were you the, <laughs> the hippie type? Were you uh, the skater Betty? Um, stop me when, when I hit something or... I think I probably dabbled in most of those things. I never got too attached to any of them, but, you know, I guess you end up finding a group of people who don't necessarily all want to be part of, like, the big club, right? And right. so you're all kind of straggling around until you're like, oh, yeah, you want to hang out? Okay. And then those kids you ran into at UVA, there was a, a group of them in your high school, or, uh, something like that in your high school, wasn't there? Like, rich kids or whatever, like... Was there some manifest? I'm sure there was. I mean, I don't know. I've never really thought about it. It it just seemed to me that I wasn't that interested in wearing pink polos and Uggs. Right. So I just didn't. <laughs> and so what did you like? I didn't worry about them too much. Uh, are you glad that your dad uh, came down on the side of UVA and got you to go there? Are you glad you went there as far as your education goes? Did you have a good e- experience? What did you study there? What was your major? I have um, a degree in Russian, and I have a degree in anthropology. Explain your choosing Russian and anthropology as majors. Is uh, are these dual majors, dual bachelors in Russian and anthropology? Yeah, I have two bachelors. So okay. Yeah. Um, well, I was 15, reading *Crime and Punishment*, living in New York. For a summer, I went to a summer program at the Juilliard School for dance, and I started reading Dostoevsky. It was assigned to me. I changed high schools, but at the time, I was at a high school with the um, IB program, the International Baccalaureate program. Mm-hmm. So that was part of our summer reading, and I was like, I love this shit. I love it. I love it. And so for the next, I don't know, five or six years, like all I read was I just what like, what read that I've read like uh, crime and punishment and Raskolnikov and his guilty conscience and yeah what 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 resonated with you about that stuff coming from your how did that speak to you do you have any idea <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I think I mean in retrospect I think I like Russian literature a lot because it's very um integrated and inclusive like it's not just going to be flat or one-sided it's like here's like the social and the religion and the political and the emotional and the psychological and it's just like all -hmm. together in one book right without it being too pretentious about being anything else i felt put through the ringer reading that book though did you how did you did you enjoy that sort of an experience i mean i guess i was about the same age as you and i maybe i was a little older like 21 i was in college when i i read it but did you have to read it no, I, I think I'd elected to read it because I was just of that. Um, I'd read other stuff, you know, other Russian literature, and I felt that what I... What other Russian literature had you read? Some kind of Tolstoy. Um, oh. I really, I didn't read any of the big books, like War and Peace or anything like that, but I read The Death of Ivan Illich, and I... I've never read War and Peace, don't tell anyone. Well, I don't think too many <laughs> people have, and it's kind of like, you know, those who have are lying. 
Um, I will read it, but I haven't read it yet. I'm not a huge, huge Tolstoy fan. I think it, when it was when I was reading uh, D- uh, Crime and Punishment, that my mother introduced me to an expression that I have have gone back to many times in my life. That you don't get any prizes for reading books you don't like, mm-hmm. even if they're, mm-hmm. um, you know, even if you sound highly, cool saying that you read it. That's right. It, it, even if you get to name check them or whatever, like struggling through a book that doesn't resonate with you, that's not working for you, whatever. I had to do a lot of that because I was an English major and I read a whole shitload of literature that I didn't give a damn about, but I'm glad I did. Anyway, um, but I, I was of a, of a sort of a dark bent, I think, at the point that I read Dostoevsky. I mean, I was drawn to the seedy, sort of bleak kind of psychological torture kind of thing. Um, and I, I had a romantic idea about what Russia was like, even c- communist Russia, you know, uh, not romantic in the sense that, that that was appealing, but just this sort of weird kind of um, strange dystopian place where uh, you know people were trying to keep hope alive or something like that I don't know but it, did you I mean I'm showing you that because did you have any kind of romantic relationship with w- Russia like that is that what those books brought out in you or did they resonate with some feeling of dis- alienation that you had or <laughs> um, I at the time I didn't I didn't I didn't know anything about Russia I mean beyond like I wasn't fascinated with it by any means when I got into college eventually I decided to major in the Russian because it let me read a lot of Russian literature and uh and therefore I've become more interested in it through the literature and through learning about it obviously but no I was never like I was never like a Slavophile Mm -hmm. in any particularly like um and you weren't drawn to communism or the or socialism or any of that? I, I don't think so. No, I think I just like the books. So say something in Russian. Здравствуйте, как дела? And what was that? It's hot in here? It says, hello, how are you doing? Yeah, it's right. Get some water. <laughs> <laughs> I do need some more speaking of which I just noticed my lips were dry. <laughs> okay, and then anthropology. Por qué? Um, anthropology, my, well, it it started because I was living with a girl my second year in college and I decided to drop some stupid class I'd signed up for. I went to it one time. I was like, I'm not interested in this whatsoever. And I came back and, um, my roommate at the time, I told her, I was like, I just dropped this class. I want to take another class. She was like, oh, I'm taking this anthropology class. It's that same time slot, like. Tuesday, Thursday, 9 to 10.30 or whatever. She's like, you should come check it out. The professor is really hot. I was like, shrug. <laughs> um, so I went and took the class. And the professor, hot or not, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't particularly attracted to him. Um, was kind of an asshole, but a very good teacher. And... Um, at some point, like, he, he starts talking, and I'm like, oh, shit, this is, like, this is how I think, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't ever, I remember asking Scully, like, well, what is anthropology? I don't even know what that is. And she's like, well, it's kind of like the study of cultures, which is me- meaningless, almost, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but is it, 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 why do they distinguish as cultural anthropology versus anthropology? Is anthropology is a study of anthro, which is what, man? And <laughs> cultural so. anthropology is more like 
it's a, a certain kind of school, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it's, it's one way to... But I, I look at anthropology as a study of people, uh-huh. and, right? And so it's the study of like, first it's the study of like all of that crap that we have tried to extrapolate from paleontology and, and archaeology, like how they lived, how people lived like a hundred... 200,000 years ago. I mean, ago think about it. You're trying to like get inside someone's brain, right? That's right. basically, I think, I've never really thought about it that way, but I guess, and that's like the big anthropological crisis is like, how can you both be on the outside being the observer and try to be on the inside too? Right. That's, Especially that's like what they freak out about. <laughs> are we ta- So is, is more of what you studied existing cultures or existing um, humanity or is it the, the entire sort of scope, the... the uh, going all the way back to like stuff that we have very limited information about like cave paintings and tools and I did study some of the cave paintings I think it was in an art history class Mm -hmm. my anthropology career was pretty short because I did not start taking classes until my second year and I went out of the country for a semester so I really only took um, the I mean I did more than the minimum that was required but I wasn't like too entrenched Mm -hmm. And I just kind of took what I wanted as far as the professors went. I didn't really have an agenda as far as like wanting to advance into working with a particular culture. Right. So I just took I took a lot of linguistics classes. Um, I took most of the classes that this one professor taught because even though he was kind of an asshole, he was a good teacher and he was engaging. Um, and when you said before that this was how you thought that you, you recognize that in that class, what were you talking about, the way that he thinks or, or the study of anthropology was like the way that you approached No, life? just anthropology. I mean, I just, it was like I had been doing, a, I would just read and write on my own. And I remember that summer reading a Ray Bradbury story and, um, and writing about it just on my own, just uh, to write about it. And, uh, and, Getting when when I got to that class, actually, mentor's actual line was like, "All of you white middle class kids, you have no idea. You've never thought about any of this stuff before." And I was like, <laughs> "Actually, this is what I've been thinking about." Um, so it was just kind of a natural, a natural fit. So is it okay? What draws me to that kind of stuff is stories, right? Like trying to figure out stories. Like I, I always like. I'm so I've always liked to try to. Um, what I what little information I have, try to piece a narrative out of it. Do you is that something that you're drawn to, like trying to find the uh, what what is the story? What's the narrative here? I mean, you enjoyed reading and writing about something you're reading. What was it that drew you to doing that? What kind of thought process? Um, looking back on it, can you? I don't know. I was like 16 or 17. Or maybe Does, at that point. Well, is I was that 18. something that carries through to now? Does it have anything to do with doing secretly all? Like, how did. Um, is that anthropology? Secretly all? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. How would you classify that as anthropology? Well, because all of these different people are telling their stories, and they're all representations of uh, internal culture and external culture. And um, I, my understanding is studying anthropology a lot is is using one of the big things they use is the stories of a culture like the myths mm-hmm. in order to understand how they think which gives you more insight into their psych their stories give you insight in their psychology so on um, maybe you know there's some desire to see how the stories that people choose to tell um 
how are they similar? How are they different? Like, what are all these different people, these different walks of life from Richmond going to come in here, and what are they going to come up with? What is, uh, how do they interpret, I've only been to one, but how do they interpret, uh, say, close calls and all the various versions of that? I mean, you get all of this insight from hearing these stories. Were you the originator of the, the project? No, secretly all started in Charlottesville, and it was three friends of mine in Charlottesville that started it there. And then when I was talking with Lainey, who um, is part of the project here, we were hanging out one night, um, and I don't know, she was talking about whatever she wanted to have happen at the bar, and she said something about stories, and I was like, oh, I got friends that run a storytelling group, and she was super interested, so I called them up. And we decided that we would just kind of start uh, the same, you know, kind of import the event here. We had mm-hmm. a space for it at Laney's Restaurant. And, and who are the other friends? Uh, Leslie, do you, you want their names? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Leslie Channel, Lauren um, Russo, and Rachel Vogus. Um, but we were going to do it because it's every other month, right? So we were going to alternate back and forth from Charlottesville to Richmond. Mm-hmm. Um but right as we transferred it here, it kind of, they all just kind of went their separate ways spontaneously. So it was very excellent timing on our part, like, you know, lucky timing that we actually got it here before it kind of fell to pieces, you know? Mm-hmm. Before the original personalities left it. Yeah. You got it set up and got it going. Got it going. Mm-hmm. So Lainey and Colin and I run it here. Um, and. I mean, I think the stories, I mean, if you want to talk about Secretly All, I'd say like my favorite thing about Secretly All um, is that it's not a performance, you know, like the best stories are the ones that are obviously spontaneous in some aspect and it really evokes, I think, the um, like the empathy from the audience, like as an audience member. Mm-hmm. Right. I I at all times want that person to succeed. Like I'm with them 100 percent in their story, you know, so you don't get that sense of like sitting at the comedy club where everyone's like, right. when are they going to say something funny? Like, yeah. when's this going to be worth it? It's like you're the whole on their thing side. Is worth, the whole thing is worth it because they're up there just like putting it all out there, mm-hmm. you know. Being, so what you enjoy about it is that it is not so rehearsed it's not like this kind of calculated sort of professional thing that's really about a transaction like i'm here to entertain you you pay me to entertain you you want something more authentic and more real and that's and you find that there i i agree i I like i mean it's it's very interesting the the tension of the people who aren't practiced at doing that and and when they find their you know they find their place you can tell they're nervous but they're just remembering to breathe and yeah, you know, they're finding that that uh, cruising altitude or whatever to get through it and tell the story, and uh, that's kind of what I like about karaoke too. Is as annoying <laughs> as karaoke can be, it's people you know being vulnerable enough to like get up and have the courage, even if they shouldn't be doing it, to oh, open up their mouths and sing. You know, and oh. and this is the same kind of thing is people having to get up there. It's it's like story karaoke. You know, on some level. I mean, you can't just show up. I don't know. I worked karaoke night for a long time at a bar, and I don't really feel comfortable about calling it Starry Karaoke (laughs) Night. You can call it whatever you want, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there with you. (laughs) But, so how does it work? Like, I've got a relatively, 
I mean, I'm, you told me about it in 2010, and it sounded really interesting. At John's wedding, you were talking about it. Um, and I know, and I heard John talk about it because he's done it before. But you announce the themes on a website, and then people sign up to do it, or how does it work? Yeah, we have a website, secretlyall.com, one Y. Um, and the themes are up there, uh, depending on when we think them up. You know, like right now, we're working out the next big event, and we're actually doing a collaboration, so the theme has not been published yet. Usually, it would have been by now. Um, but so the theme is announced on the website on Facebook usually we send out an email to the mailing list let, letting them know and people send in their submissions via email usually I mean sometimes Colin will meet somebody at the bar that he'll rope into it or mm-hmm. you know some in some other John you mm-hmm. know I'd be like John come on tell mm-hmm. the story but um, and then we have a chance to review the submissions, which is, uh, it's, you know, you have to do something, but it's like, you never really know from what somebody submits to what's going to happen. I mean, you have no idea what's going to happen up on stage. Um, so the first part of the show is kind of like you're, you do need to have some idea what they're going to get up there and talk about if they're, but the second part is totally random, right? Well, the first part of the show, all we really know is who is supposed to be telling. We have a set list, right? So Mm -hmm. we have those five to seven people that we have confirmed and hopefully show up. Mm -hmm. Most of the time they do. Um, And so that's pretty much all we know. And we have an idea of the story we think they're going to tell. Sometimes they'll switch it. Mm -hmm. and uh, Really? They'll just pull a different story out of their tukus and... I mean, sometimes it's just like, well, this is where I thought I was going to go, but now I'm going to go here, which is fine. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have no problem with that personally, as long as it has to do with the theme. And then the second part of the night, anybody. So most people, I mean, for, excuse me, many of us would feel kind of very timid at all. But then, like I said, you're sitting there, you watched, you've already watched five or seven people go up there and like put their asses out on the line. Mm-hmm. So I think, oh, and there's a bar there, so it probably helps as well, right? And gets people sure. to throw their name in the hat, mm-hmm. and um, liquid courage, and then just get we just pull out names at random. So those are the stories we have. We don't know who's put their name in there. You know, I'm pulling the names out blindly. We don't know what their stories are going to be about. Then hat is usually where, like, the I don't want to say the best story because they're all great, but like the most surprisingly, like, whoa, that story was awesome. You know, and like. Usually comes from one of the hat tellers. Oh, really? And not ha- always, but have you ever have you had some that were just like this was a disaster? Like when the person got up there to tell their story. <laughs> you don't have to name them. Has that happened before? I don't think there's ever been like a disaster. Disaster. Um, the only thing I mean, there's sometimes there's very rarely that. I wouldn't say there's ever been a disaster. There's There was one time where I thought I was going to have to take a guy off stage because he was being really weird. Mm-hmm. But he was telling a story, you know. How was he being weird? Uh, he, <laughs> he was... Um, the subject matter of his story was unclear, but insinuating maybe something pretty perverse... And um, there was some body language and some gestures involved. No, that was Chris Popes. Uh, <laughs> no, this was a guy. This is another guy. Um, 
Bobst in that microphone stand got really personal when he told a story. <laughs> uh, no, this is somebody else. There, there was there was allusions to maybe. I mean, it was unclear from the way he was telling the story, but allusions to maybe child molestation. Hmm. Um, I don't. I don't even. I don't even. I can't really go into all of it without just kind of repeating the story itself. And I was at the moment. I was sitting there thinking like. At what point do am I responsible to get up on stage and try to escort this guy mm-hmm. off the stage? But mm-hmm. he finished on his own and ended it. And it really, the story really weirded some people out, and some other people were just like shrug was didn't really pay attention. You're like, all right, because it weirded the shit out of me. But do you like when there's the feeling of like things aren't work? You know, I, I guess there's a general sense of sort of elation in the room when things are going well. Everybody's laughing and having a good time. Do you and you feel like a certain connection to the person that's telling the story? You want them to do well. You're supporting them. Uh, do you ever feel the opposite of that when somebody's up there, like you're just cringing for them, and it's difficult? <laughs> <laughs> Not cringing at their story, but cringing for them. You mean? Yeah, just like they're having a hard time getting through it, and and you're, you know, it's an empathic. Uh, I think I don't think there's really been a lot of instances of that. Mm-hmm. I mean. Maybe it's just a natural selection of anybody who's going to throw their name in the hat or submit is already going to be ballsy enough to stand mm-hmm. up there, right? Right. But also, like I said, I think that you do feel a fair amount of audience support while you're up there. So, mm-hmm. um, like, we've never had anybody, like, stop ever. You know, you'd think that sometime you'd have somebody just be like, forget this and, like, mm-hmm. step off the stage and never have. Like, and never... So, Nobody's I've never had anybody come up to me... Choked up there and, nope. like... Mm-hmm. Nope. And... I understand. I've gathered that it's it's a fundraiser. Do all the funds that you raise go to straight the, to me? No, they yeah, all the go charity. to um, <laughs> they all go to the charity. We usually try to choose a local charity. So that night, the, they count the money and we write the check. And we usually, if we have a representative of the charity there, just send it off with them. Was that something that was done at the Charlottesville one also, or did you was that a twist that you put on it here to make it a charity event? I don't remember. <laughs> Um, I know that they, I think they kept some of the money to help fund what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, Pay for promotion, maybe, website Yeah, costs, and like website like. and equipment, you know, recording equipment and stuff. Um, all of ours goes directly to the charity because we don't, it's not like we have to, you know, rent the bar or anything, you know what I mean? Because like, Laney's involved with the place. Yeah, mm-hmm. so... For the next event, for the Dave Brocky event, we are going to take a very... Because all that money is going to him. So oh, really? secretly all is taking a small cut from that. It's the first time we're really taking a cut from the door so that we can buy ourselves a gong. Huh. <laughs> and what... Shall we just stay tuned for how the gong is going to be uh, employed or do you want to get a... Uh, where we can pretty much fill in I think you can pretty infer what's going to happen with the yeah. gong. And maybe we a have nice a bell, hook, right? Perhaps. Yeah, the hook would be next on my. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just kidding. No, I mean the just. It was kind of a joke, and then it was like, all right, no, let's really do that. But gongs are kind of expensive, Curtis. Yeah, all that percussion stuff, drum stuff, is ridiculously expensive. So, how did you? I mean, how did you decide not to enrich yourselves from doing it at all? Like, I mean, you're putting a lot of work into it and whatever. Like, what what made you decide not to take a, any kind of a profit or pay yourselves for put, doing this entertainment? Was it just something that naturally occurred to you, or was there a discussion and a decision around it? I mean, I think I think it probably came up at some point. I mean, when we were planning it, what we wanted to do, and I think Colin probably I was 
Colin was probably the one who was like, I kind of want the money just to go to the charity, and mm-hmm. I was fine with that. And there's a nice, I mean, it's like the class I taught today. It's donation based. Like mm-hmm. there's a nice release from like needing to worry about any of that, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just like whatever money comes in goes, you know, just passes through our hands briefly and goes mm-hmm. towards the charity, and you don't have to think about it any more than that. You know, you don't have to worry about it any more than that. So, and it feels awesome to be able to donate, you know, 500 bucks. Mm-hmm. It's usually like between, I mean, recently, hopefully it'll continue to be like $500 to a local charity. Just yeah. like that, you know, it's pretty sweet. That's pretty, I mean, now that kind of thinking should be normal to uh, uh, <laughs> people in general, but it isn't. Do you have has that value the idea of being a uh, an agent for that kind of a thing, you know, sort of the give and take and the you know the channels of that has that something has that been something that's sort of always been there in in your life or is that something perhaps that your yoga practices and in, has encouraged you to uh, I mean is it, it, are you into did you find yourself doing yoga for spiritual reasons or did you fi- start doing it for exercise reasons and then it had maybe some um, side effects of making you think more like that to appreciate. Uh, Which question do you want me to answer? I take your pick. This is, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm, these aren't really questions. It's more like leading. Okay. Uh, you know, so you can answer it however you want. I was trying to keep track of them. I was like, oh my God, this is a lot. I'm questions. trying to formulate my thoughts. So it's not, it's not really a formal interview. Too hot we're we're for just formulation. talking about, yeah. Um, I, like to have money when it facilitates me doing things. I don't really have a purpose to have a lot of money just to have it, mm-hmm. right? Um, I am of the persuasion, perhaps, that, you know, if you're going to need something, it's going to show up. Mm-hmm. And if you hold on too tightly to something, it's probably going to go away. Mm-hmm. I w- where that intersects with yoga or if maybe I can speak about it more clearly because of yoga sure right um well let's make this a little easier like I am curious how you started doing yoga and oh yeah Rodney Yee's AMPM VHS tape purchased mm-hmm. from Walmart what made you buy that <laughs> like what was going on was there an inquiry existing? well I mean I grew yeah. up dancing so I knew what yoga was we right. would do yoga sometimes it's you know um, it's been around a while. It's it's been around the block. Um, so by the time I did get to college, I had some pretty bad back issues, mm-hmm. and so one day one of the upperclassmen drove us to Walmart. Woohoo! Mm-hmm. When we were first years in college, and I saw that there, and I bought it, and I did it. I did part of the AM yoga VHS like every day for. Was AM PM mean there was two workouts, one for the morning and one for the evening, or? Yes. Okay. The PM one was way too boring, though. Uh-huh. Um, and that was just kind of like how I got set in a routine. Um, Did you have any intellectual assumptions or things like that? It was just thought, movement. You know, it was right? movement to me. And if I do it, if I did it, then my back wouldn't hurt and I wouldn't have back spasms mm-hmm. and I could stand up straight. You know, and if I didn't do it, then I would have back spasms. So it, I don't even think it was necessarily yoga. It was just that I went from a life of doing a lot of movement and being really involved with my body and then stopping that when I broke my feet. So my body was just probably like, the fuck? Mm-hmm. I need to keep moving. 
and then from there I didn't I didn't know anything else about yoga I didn't know anything I just went to the UVA library and checked out some really old books on yoga and started reading about it and you know by the time I got back to Spain after college was pretty into it like was pretty much like reading and I have you know like all these notes that I took from back then um so at that point it evolved more into an interest Mm -hmm. uh, more than just like the physical side of it but yeah started Rodney's Yee's AMPM yoga VHS that's how it all began and you were talking about movement. Like, what when you were doing dance before, what was it about dance? Was dance just something that, like, you got into? Like, kids get into soccer when they're kids, and your mom took you to ballet classes and whatever? Or was you drawn to it for some some role model? or? Yeah, my best like, friend was taking dance classes, and mm-hmm. I was like, I want to take dance classes. Mm-hmm. And then they thought I was really good, so I kept dancing. And then you're a kid, and you just keep doing what you're doing, right? It's mm-hmm. that inertia and I probably would have kept doing that had I not been stopped very... At a young age. Completely. The body failed you. Uh. <laughs> so, like, you know, I got, I've known about yoga since I was in elementary school. You know, it's been around the precocious. idea of sitting... What's that? Said precocious. Well, only that, like, we had weird hippie-type people that came around to the Richmond Public Schools when I was in uh, elementary school, and would teach us all kinds of different sort of movement classes. You know, there would be a dance thing. There would be some kind of calisthenics. Um, and sometimes somebody would come through and teach us various yoga poses. And for some reason, I remember the lotus position very early on. And I got myself at like at age eight or nine or ten to be able to sit in the full lotus <laughs> position with both feet like on my... And I was really into like the, the idea of it, uh, s- sort of stretching my limits you know, of like, you know, can I get my, I mean, I was a lot more limber as a young, you know, 10 year old, like, can I get my, you know, ankle behind my head and can I do a back bridge and all that stuff? And I can't, I remember people were exposed me to it, but I, I never, th- I didn't think about it again until two or three years ago. And, um, I, part of what I was involved in recommended meditation and I was doing seated, different kinds of seated meditation. And um, I had taken a class once that was a, probably more of a Hatha thing, which was very focused on the poses, but also being mindful of what your body's doing, you know, putting the weight in the in the muscle and not the joint and things like that. And, and, uh, and I decided I wanted to do a type of meditation that involved movement because I'm always trying to exercise and, you know, whatever. So... I started doing it, and at the point that I did it, I was really under the assumption, okay, I've found my way into this ancient tradition, you know, and there was a lot of uh, romantic spiritual ideas around doing yoga practices, that this is something that somebody was doing in India like a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, and then I watched this movie that said- I was going to say, do you still think that? No, I no. Okay. <laughs> but, I, and I'm t- this long-winded thing I'm setting, I, I want to talk about with you is that I got a little dis- disappointed when I watched this movie called Enlighten Up, where this woman, oh, yeah. Kate Churchill, who's a, you know, like a film producer, she shoots like, yoga videos and stuff. She decided on a premise, take somebody that is not at all spiritual and doesn't care about yoga and get them to do yoga for six months and see if it changes them at all. And in the first part of it, she's interviewing all these different people and, and they're making all kinds of crazy claims about how old yoga is. 
And ultimately, we find out, no, it's about 100, 150 years old, what we're doing now, that this Iyengar... Well, the asanas, the asanas are. They're old, but... They, but no, the, the asanas are, are like about 100... They're like the turn of the... They're, I mean, for what, from what I've understood, they basically came from India's campaign for independence, right? Mm-hmm. From British rule. They were like, we need to sculpt something that like is a positive representation of our culture. Huh. So I hadn't I hadn't heard that. So they so there is some mention of there is very little mention of asana in the yogic texts that we use. There's some, but um mostly the theory is that you would do asana simply to prepare you to meditate, right? So that you could sit, you get your core right. strong so you can sit, you limber up your hips and your quadriceps and your calves and all that stuff it makes sense i mean if you sit in the lotus position after you've done yoga it's a lot more comfortable right (laughs) well and you've worked all the like anxious energy out of the body Mm -hmm. and you know so but i had so at the end of that movie like the guy she's got doing it i mean they they take in a lot of information but he's (laughs) gradually is starting to have some kind of uh he's having some kind of an awakening and uh he ends up quitting doing yoga and he moves back to Colorado to be around his mother. And at the end of the movie, they show him doing rock climbing and they juxtapose this with Kate doing her, um, her workout. And, and like he falls off the rock face while he's trying to do it. And, you know, just with a line, nothing bad. It just shows that he was trying something and he, and he had a setback doing it. And then they show her doing a headstand and she falls. (laughs) And, Well, I think they were they're trying to make the point that something that you're trying to do, you know, just repeatedly that you're practicing doing, it doesn't really matter if it's, it's a practice. Right. It's okay. the idea of a practice, right. I was like, that's a horrible end to them. This is taking up a lot of time for me to get to this thing I wanted to say. But I had a thing today when I was in your class, I went, it doesn't make any difference that it's a hundred where it came from. In fact it's kind of cool that yeah. here in this world, in this culture, really, it's kind of an American invention. And we're sitting there doing this really mindful, meditative, like intentional, healthy, you know, thing that you just, you don't associate with America, but it actually was created by people living in this country, you know, and and it has been expanded upon by people living in this country. And I don't mean necessarily any particular example of such, but Iyengar came, brought it here and has really developed, and there are all of these branches. Well, there's a couple here. of people that brought it over, yes. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I would call it American. But well, what do you, I mean, to me, American is the sum total of all of the cultures that pass through here. You know, and it's it's more popular here than it is anywhere else. It's you know, it's more of a thing to do yoga in America. This comedian was just talking about how there's like nobody. There aren't any Indians in the yoga class. He's Indian, and he's like, I go to all these yoga classes all over the place. There are no Indians in those classes. But anyway, the point is is that, again, anything you're doing, you're doing this thing. It doesn't matter where it came from. It doesn't matter if anybody else is signing off on it. The results are, like you just said, when I am, when you don't do it, your back hurts. Or back then, when you didn't do it, your back hurts. When you do it, it helps. So... I mean, I think it just creates a space, right? I mean, I was talking to my uncle the other day, and he he and my aunt just started taking a yoga class. And he's like, oh, like, I don't think I'll ever be able to do the poses. I don't think I'll ever be good at it. So I'm like, okay, like, it's not you, you can't be really bad at it. I mean, if you're mm-hmm. doing it, you can't, I mean, 
let's put it this way. If you're doing it and being nice to yourself, you can't do it badly, right? Right. If you're doing it and you're beating yourself up, then that's not, well, if we were in class, I'd be like, that's not yoga. Right. Right. <laughs> right. But, um, but, you know, we were talking about it and he was referring specifically to the asanas and then he was talking about how, like, when he rides his bike or even when he does the dishes, he, like, very purposefully, like, quiets down his thoughts and, like, doesn't, you know, get, doesn't dwell, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, well, then you already know how to do yoga. That is yoga, right? Mm -hmm. That's yoga. Like, it doesn't matter if you're climbing the rocks or if you're sitting on a stupid sticky mat that you bought at Target mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. um, or you're, you know, what music you're listening to or if you're on a bicycle, that's yoga, right? That's yeah. That's the engrossment of being where you are. I think it's, a it's I mean... I, w I took the word practical and the word practice and all of that completely for granted, you know, it, it, as it applies to something like this. I almost thought of it as a um, affect, but it is the it's a, the most nuts and bolts kind of idea. It's like let's we know already what we're habitually doing, which is like time traveling in our minds all the time. We're we're, we're all the way down the road worrying about this, or we're fretting over something that just happened. There's all of this. I'm still upset that you called it story karaoke. Oh my God! Yeah, you need to get in the moment. That's those. That, that's the past. <laughs> I'm, hey, I apologize if that I hurt your feelings. You know, and, and also feel free to like if you hear me saying some shit you think is just totally wrong. You know, like no, correct I'm just me. Just joking with you. Well, that whole bit where you were completely silent and knitting your brow when I was talking about you know yoga as being an American thing. I mean, you know, that's just a theory, and you know, we're we're here to discuss theories like that. So if you're like, I think you're full of shit, you know. It's, <laughs> Totally I just, cool. I've Don't worry about embarrassing about me. That. I've never thought about it as being American or, you know, obviously it's not just an Indian thing, right? Obviously. Right. America. There's been a huge contrib contribution to it on the part of people like Baron Baptiste and all of these others that have made, you know, whole adaptations of it. And, and, and yet they're, they constantly keep that spirit in it of mindfulness and attention you know this this idea of like being easy on yourself and relaxing and challenging yourself at the same time you know there's this um i mean i guess the reason i'm i'm wanting to like uh, illuminate that is that i hear a lot as a you know as an anthropologist in america as i look around me you know we as people who are the kinds that live in you know this part of richmond and whatever we have a tendency to define an american a certain way you know um like an I don't like being an American because Americans are X, Y, and Z. You know, they go to Walmart and they eat bad food and they are ignorant and, you know, uh, xenophobic and whatever. And yet it's Americans that are saying that about other Americans. Like the people who live in this country that have the alternative ideas are also Americans. Like that's very much also a culture of America to be questioning things, to be seeking solutions, to be thinking of health and mindfulness and sustainability and all of that. These are also things that have sprung up in this country. You know, they don't get the same attention, but they're still very much American practices. They're very much American values. They're very much American ideas, you know, because Americans are engaged in them. You know, they're, they're trying to... Um, bring them about community gardens uh this charitable thing that you would put on an entertainment event just to make money to give away to somebody else you know the, that's an that's an american thing you're an american doing that you know and i don't i don't think 
I think we give our own country a bad rap a lot by not recognizing the fact that we are part of it and we are if we don't like something that's going on in it, then we do something else and we make that what America is. Like we can't we don't have to transform the whole fucking continent. We don't have to get everybody as long as some people who live here are doing something different, you know, and no country has a monopoly on any of that stuff. You know? So I, I just sort of had a little moment when I was doing it in your class today that I went, you know, it's awesome that it's here right, that we're doing this here right now in this country. It doesn't matter if it's connected to India or if it's connected to the dusty past or something else. There's five people in this room that hey, are... I was there too. There's six. Six, my bad. <laughs> you were. But uh, so your relationship with it um, began with the... Uh, Rodney Yee thing and then you started studying it and you said you threw in something about going to Spain or going back to Spain did you say that or did I mishear you so what was that all about what you go to Spain for (laughs) sounds like what'd you go to jail for what'd you go (laughs) to Spain for I went to Spain when I was in college to study there and I went back um, after college and to live there. How long did you live there? I like a year and a half or two, while. And what was that like? Well, I was the foreigner, mm-hmm. so. Um, like going to UVA and not getting the memo. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't get the memo. Uh, did you speak Spain Spanish when you? Did you? Or all that Russian you had learned wasn't I have useful. I studied Spanish as well. I have a minor in Spanish. And I, stud- I lived there. So I had, when I went to study there, I was too mortified to ever talk. I was very, 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 very self-conscious and very shy and, like, never spoke. So part of going back was, like, um, a confrontation of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so Confronting that, that fear and... Mm-hmm. And uh, so I didn't speak English at all when I lived there. I mean, very rarely. There, I lived with one guy named George who was from England. I lived with him for a couple of months, and I, he couldn't speak Spanish, but he would try sometimes, and it was just so mind-bogglingly annoying that I would speak English. I gave in to him. I caved mm-hmm. and spoke English to, to, to George, but... Um, yeah, so I I learned how to speak Spanish. I mean, I I got better. I got I got that's what I did. I mean, it, even now it kind of I can still speak and communicate and read and write and all that, but it's kind of blows my mind that I that's like that was my day in day out. You know, I had work. I worked and traveled. What did you do for a, a job there? Just kind of whatever. <laughs> whatever or? you can do. I worked on farms for a while, right? That's what I started doing, and then. I convinced a guy to let me work in his hostel for a hot minute. And then when I got my own apartments, I ended up, I had to give English classes, which I was kind of bummed about. But so I had some students and then um, got a job at this restaurant. So, I mean, living there in the, by the time I was living in an apartment, I was living in the South and it's really cheap. So. You know, I was paying like, what, 125, 150 euros a month for an mm-hmm. apartment for a room, mm-hmm. you know. So you went there first on like a, for a semester 
And when you came home, you're like, that didn't go the way I wanted it to go at all. I'm going to go back there and do that for real. I'm going to go back there and I'm going to speak Spanish. I'm going to live in Spain. And like, it was partly about Spain, but it was also about like not letting that be the last word on your experiences abroad. But how did it further uh, change you to actually live there for two years? What was it like being, like you said, you were the foreigner and... Um, how did that experience change you? Like, and how did you get through that for two years? Oh, I don't know. I'm sure it changed me lots of ways. Uh, well, if you realize that when you need something, it's going to show up, right? I said that earlier. Um, I was talking recently about, I decided before I came home from that last stint in Spain, my brother was getting married, so I was going to come home and I was broke mm-hmm. and I was kind of sick of it. Um, to go to Portugal and hike from Portugal to uh, Santiago del Compostelo, right? The Camino del Santiago, but through Portugal, not France. And then once I did that, I decided to, I wanted, all I wanted to do then with my last couple of days, like my last week was hang out at the beach. So my plan was get to Santiago, complete that, and then like just kind of go to the beach before I had to get back to Madrid to fly out. And there was no sunshine. It rained the whole time. That last like seven or nine days or whatever it was, I just hitchhiked back down Portugal. And no sunshine. I think one day I got to go to the beach. And I think it rained. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, uh, but by the time I got back, I, I wasn't planning on it, but I ended up getting back to Granada where I lived. And I surprised my roommates because they didn't think they were ever going to see me again. I showed up and they're like, what the hell? And showed up with like... I don't know how much now. I mean, to me at the time, it was a lot of money. It was like 40 euros or 60 euros that people had given to me from just giving me rides mm-hmm. and like water bottle. You know, they gave me everything. They, I didn't ask. All I asked for was a ride, right? Mm-hmm. I'm standing on the side of the road. I'm like, I'm going south. And they, you know, one guy during the ride, like pulled over at, you know, like a a road stop and bought me lunch you know he's like buy whatever you want I'm like you really don't have to buy me lunch he's like no let me buy you lunch um let me give you this bottle of water let me you know like give you you know and people were like what you took their money I was like no I I said no mm-hmm. I said mm-hmm. no you know obviously someone's gonna give you a ride they've done you a big favor but mm-hmm. um you know as one guy put it I was like getting out of his car on the side of the interstate and he's like trying to hand me like 20 or 30 euros and I'm like really it's okay like thank you I appreciate it but it's okay and he's like look I used to travel a lot I understand like please take this you know mm-hmm. um so that changed that maybe that was the introduction of the thought of like you know money is a tool it's just it's supposed to pass through you it's not supposed to be something you hoard you know, it, you can be on the receiving end of it when you need it sometimes. And you can be giving it out when you have more than you need. Oh, I needed and that money because when, yeah. when I got back to Granada, I took all of my friends out for a night at the bar. <laughs> we bought anything we wanted with our 40 euros or whatever. It was pretty fun. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I share that, like, idea about money and, and, and pretty much about everything else. And that um, if you're really focused on something and you're doing something that the means sort of come in my case it wasn't money when i lived in new york i just knew people and i decided i wanted to start playing drums and suddenly i had a drum kit and i had a practice space right, and i exactly. had all of these things that i couldn't afford i didn't i was making less than twenty thousand dollars a year when i lived in manhattan in the fucking 90s right and yet i had all of this stuff i, n- I hardly ever paid for anything like 
Um, and I don't think it's some kind of superstition or magic. It's like people want to support people that are trying to do things, you know, on some level. And um, and money isn't the only way that that gets done. There are no, other no, ways that course. people exchange, oh, yeah, give absolutely. support and exchange value and all that. So um, that's is that some is that a kind of a thinking that took you know began for you in Europe, or do you think that was like that attitude was there? You're just that kind of person, or were your parents like that about? Um, no, my parents were not like that. Um, uh, I don't know when it, I don't know. I mean, this is, are you different from your parents? <laughs> That's a funny question. Um, I'm, yes, I think I am different than my parents. Are you at odds with them or do you, do you get along with them? Or? Oh no, I get along very well with my father. My parents are separated. I don't talk to my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother is extremely grabby about money mm-hmm. and has sued many people. So perhaps those are the seeds, not my time in Europe, living as in my idyllic hippie life. Um, not digging the way your mom is about money, and finding yeah. that unattractive. Not di- were, they, were your parents together the whole time you were growing up, or did they separate did They separate recently or a long time no, ago? No, my parents separated when I was in fourth grade. Mm-hmm. Did your dad remarry, or did they remarry? My dad got remarried three years ago, actually, finally. And do you have siblings? Yep. How many? I have three Brady siblings, and now I have a stepbrother and a stepsister. And are they, where are they, in Arlington? Are they in Richmond? Where is everybody spread out? Well, right this moment, Harrisonburg, Falls Church, Ben's in Lima. Or no, he's not in Lima. He's in Peru now, somewhere. Arequipa. Um... And then I guess, yeah, the Nagel kids are up there right now in Northern Virginia until they go back to school. So, You kind of nodded at me when you were talking about working on a farm in Spain. Are you involved in, like, agriculture-type stuff now? I at nodded all? at you. Yeah, I thought <laughs> you'd like... like, you know. Yeah. You yeah. know about you that. You know what's up. And I, th- I figured, I know some of your resume. I know that you're a dancer, and I know that you do yoga, and you host secretly all... Um, I help run a community garden here. I'm outed. <laughs> What's it called? Um, the Grace Arts Community Garden that's down behind the William Bird Center in Oregon Hill. And what is the... Uh, oh, that's the big one behind, like near the softball field, right? That's the farmlet. Oh. The one that's out by the softball field is the farmlet, and Mar- Matthew does that. And then inside the little fence is the word for that fence. Um there's community garden beds. And what is, uh, uh, do people in that neighborhood in like Oregon Hill come over there and grow stuff? Or, pe- or is it actually, when it's when you say community garden, is it a community of Oregon Hill or is it? Um, um, well, I started there when I lived in Oregon Hill. Mm-hmm. And there are some people there who are in Oregon Hill. And some other people that um, just maybe knew me or, you know, found out about it otherwise. Up until this year, well, up until last year, but really this year, there wasn't a lot of community about it. Nobody really knew each other, and not much was getting done. Um, but in this past two growing, like, past two springs, we've gotten it together a little bit better. That's funny. It didn't occur to me till just now. I always think of a community garden as being, like, it's in the community, and it somehow serves the community. Not that it's a community of gardeners, like, with their individual plots all together and is it, is it maybe it's a little bit of both 
sometimes, but sometimes our community gardens, like that one was for a while functioning like a bunch of roommates that weren't necessarily on the same page, but are now. Oh, no, I think that people just didn't. When I got there, I just never met. I never met anybody else. Like it was just kind of abandoned. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been less that there was any sort of like bad juju and more like there just was no juju at all like nobody was there Mm. it was like me and like two other people who kind of like were there the whole time trying to hold it together so we've just been pulling in over the past two years like people who who are more interested in being there you know um because yeah at first it was just overgrown and a mess Mm -hmm. it was a mess and do you get do you get enough food out of the, of what you do there to eat do you sell it like what what goes on with what you grow there do you grow food there do you grow flowers do you grow food <laughs> um yeah i eat it i share it i don't sell it um mostly i eat it <laughs> what's your most successful crop in there what are you best at oh it just depends it depends on I mean, like this season, I grew, I had all these tomato seeds that I saved from plants last year, and I seeded them and got, I for a while, like right where you're sitting was like the tomato nursery. I had like 72 tomato plants growing. Mm-hmm. It was insane. <laughs> they were like my children. <laughs> and then I... They can be kind of a pain, the tomatoes, too much sun... Or too much water, not enough sun. Not, they're, they're much more, they have a narrower margin for success, it seems like, than a lot of other things. They don't... Well, not nor. I mean, normally our weather is pretty good. Like, it's hot, and as long as you keep them watered, they are pretty content. Mm-hmm. This year, however, I ha- my plants are like monsters, because it's been raining so much, but the but tomatoes no haven't... tomatoes on them. <laughs> well, they haven't been turning, yeah. Like, right. they'll stay green, because there hasn't been, like, a really hot... You know, it's been hot, but then it'll rain, and it'll be hot, mm-hmm. and it'll rain... Um, so it just depends and it depends, you know, like I always tell people when they want to know about getting a plot, they're like, I don't think I'd be very good at it. It's like, well, luckily plants are designed to grow. Mm -hmm. So, and there's very minimum number of things you have to do to make them grow. Um, so if you put them in the ground and you keep them watered, they'll pretty much grow. You have to pay minimal attention to them. Right. But the more, so your, your first garden is usually your best garden because you have no expectations right mm-hmm. if something dies you're just like shrug mess that up but the more you do it the more you like i don't know the more you learn the more you're like oh no like now my tomato plant has you know aphids on it now i have to figure out how to get rid of the aphids or now there's cabbage loopers or now there's harlequin beetles so oh yes the bugs eating it the bugs. My mother uh, has a garden up in Churchill, and I was over there working in it. And it's insane to me. I mean, everything's just g- gone nuts growing, but like I noticed there weren't a lot of tomatoes there. There's just a lot of tomato plant. There's, There's a, a lot of vines and shit leaves. Shit ton and of tomato. Like, they're monsters. Like, seriously, monsters. I've just brought home, I have some tomatoes there, but they're not even uh, that good because they're so swollen. Like, mm-hmm. they're just not even that sweet. Mm-hmm. But hopefully the season will even out so where's your dance uh involvement these days um i dance with the star foster dance project 
We have rehearsals on Sundays. And shows here in Richmond, generally in October, and I think we have another one. We always have a big show in October. And then we have a choreographer showcase in March or May. And then wherever else we end up going. And what kind of dances is modern dance? Modern dance. And there's different choreographers that come in and do it? Or is is Star a choreographer? Star is the choreographer. The choreographer, okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah, modern dance, Star is the choreographer. There's like seven or eight of us right now, I think. There might even be nine. I don't remember. There's been a fair amount of new people coming in. So we're just getting ready for the show in October. That's off. We'll uh, be looking forward to that. You seem very tired. I, I've, you're the first person I've had yawn into the microphone. So <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, it's it's very. This is this is uh, interview verite, like everything, warts and all. But it's it's an indication. <laughs> Could you hear that? that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't have the headphones on, so we'll have to see later. <laughs> If I could hear it or not, but I you're rubbing you your I, eyes and yawning. I told you I was tired when you bad. got here. I was like, I I've know, been on I'm the road. I'm keeping you up past your bedtime, and you've had a very busy day. So uh, I thanks thanks for sitting down with me, though, and uh, I look forward to checking out the next Secretly All, which is August 12th, right? Yeah, August 12th, Dave Brocky's got some monologues. Mm-hmm. And that's secretlyall.com, and then Star Foster. Keep your eye out for that, and then uh, maybe you'll get some tomatoes out of it if, if it'll stop raining all the time. <laughs> Thanks, Kathleen. No problem, Curtis. No problem, Kathleen. Well, all right, that was Kathleen Brady, uh, host, one of the hosts of Secretly Y'all. That's coming up on Monday, the 12th, at Balasso. Dave Brocky. Dave Brocky is my next guest on Tantric Conversation. Uh, he will be up on Thursday. I got a whole bunch more of them in the in the in the, uh, sh- in the hopper for you guys. Been just going crazy doing interviews. Um, as a result, I haven't really been looking for work, and my funds are dwindling. So, oh, for the love of God, please! Um, if you could, uh, <clears throat> yeah, find it in your heart to stop by the donate page maybe if you are a regular listener and you're enjoying this um, even if it's just some sort of sick psychological experiment that you're watching from afar wouldn't you like to see me continue it for as long as possible put some money down you can go you go to this place on my page it says donate and you go there and you can make a paypal and you just you, all you need is a credit card it's just like buying something from amazon just put you know me twenty dollars. Borrow twenty dollars. Let me see twenty bucks. I'll, uh, I'll get it back to you in spades. Um, lots of stuff coming up. Think most of the things that I know about are music related um, that I've taken the time to find out about. We've got uh, the barbecue on the seventeenth. Uh, this week, Sound City RVA. This this weekend with uh, Breeders and Deer Hunter and Elvez. At barbecue's got COC Municipal Waste. Um, Cannabis Corpse, uh, a bunch of other. There's a whole lot of bands out there at Haddad's. It's 30 bucks, well worth it. It's going to be a fun day. I I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, for the smaller clubs, please check out One Way Richmond. Uh, that's John Morgan. He's, he's compiling all that stuff for you. Also, we got the art, uh, street art fair that's uh, put together by Ed Trask, the local 
version of mural painting locally local artists local or locally organized put together thing that's starting soon dog on it look it up i don't know the date but i know it's happening and at least i reminded you to check it out same goes for most of this stuff i mean i'm not a calendar what do you want from me i'm just trying to raise the signal on some of this stuff if you happen to be in charlottesville there's a show on sunday a band called shark nato no no they're not they're sharkopath damn it look what pop culture has done to my brain and that poor band sharkopath corsair and stonehenge um it's at the main street annex and uh i'm gonna be there if you want to come by and say hello uh you know i'll uh, let you in for free not so um yeah peace